0: Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, JJ Peterson. Hi, JJ. Hi, Don. Who is the jerkiest person you've ever interacted with?
1: Um... I can't look at you when I say this. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, the jerkiest person I've ever interacted with, well, I would say maybe on a consistent basis, there was <laughs> there was a guy in college who yeah. was an administrator at the university that I went to. And I toured for the school. I sang in a group and like was on scholarship and toured around. And he was in charge of the group before I was in it. And he used to make people weigh in when they got into the van over the weekends because I would tour on the weekends and he would actually make them weigh in and if they like, had like lost weigh, like yeah, weight, weigh, weight. And to, so, to get
0: in a van and a singing group
1: yep if you had gained weight then you got in trouble like so he would actually literally what make people what are you talking yeah, about yeah he would make people weigh in one time we were on tour and we were out at this thing we had we were at this big conference We had done six shows in one day. It was during this crazy heat wave where a whole bunch of people died in Chicago, like during this heat wave. And we were over there and everything. The end of the day, last show, I sit down in this green room and I'm sit down next to him and I go, oh, I am so tired. And he goes, it's because you're fat. Oh my god. And he gosh. literally said and I actually weighed a lot less than I weigh now. But he goes, It's cause wow. you're fat. And from then on, if he saw me in the cafeteria at the school, he would come over and like take French fries off of my plate you have and throw them away. You've got to be kidding nope,
0: me. No, he did Boy. it.
1: And then he actually That's my shoulder wait now.
0: Do you ever just punch? He was ever, a
1: very old man.
0: <laughs> oh, <I laughs> and could he uh, less. I would have yeah, punched him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I had shoulder problems and my shoulder just kept dislocating and he saw my parents like at some event around that time. And my dad said, Yeah, you know, Jade is doing good, but he's had shoulder troubles and everything. And he told my parents, he goes, it's because he's overweight. And he just constantly dogged me all the time, and I wasn't really that overweight. I was an athlete at that point, and it just dogged me everywhere I that's, went with it. it yeah, he was, and then hard. I yeah. learned like he was doing that to a lot of people, not just about weight, but he was. What'd you do a about it?
0: Did you, did you like avoid, try to avoid him? Because yeah, we're talking totally to, avoided him. Yeah. Totally
1: avoided him, and we had multiple conflicts. But then, like, I eventually started standing up to him when he would say things yeah. to me, and he had already lost credibility with so many people around. Anyway, they tend to burn bridges, like don't they? Yeah, he burned a lot of bridges so people kind of were on my side after a while but man he was my nemesis yeah i hate
0: it when somebody can get on your skin yeah that's a game to me like you can't let them get on your skin yeah they want to irritate you no i just will destroy
1: you (laughs) like
0: that's (laughs) that's your mentality now yeah oh wow
1: i will yeah. So watch your back.
0: <laughs> I will sometimes. There's a lot to lose <laughs> if you go after somebody. Because, you know, you're going to wrestle around in the pigs with mud. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I don't really Mud-less destroy takes. people, but I like to have like a fake nemesis.
0: A like, villain makes the story Exactly.
1: Good. Right now, Tim is my nemesis. There's yeah. no reason, but I've just created oh, I'll Tim give you five as reasons. my- i have created Tim as Our my producer? nemesis, and I'm slowly destroying him, yeah. and he doesn't even know it.
0: He's never said a nice thing about you behind your back. Yeah. I've never heard Tim Mm-mm. do that. I,
1: that's classic Tim.
0: And he's, I see him- Classic Tim. Yeah. Nemesis Tim. Classic your, your Chips, your potato chips. Yeah. I've seen him do he that. He
1: sneaks my cheese when I'm not looking. <laughs> <laughs> so, who moved my cheese?
0: Tim. <laughs> Tim's not going to make a good villain, though. Actually, there's a, I know because he's like the nicest guy. He in is the entire nicest entire guy in the world. <laughs> Doesn't work. There's a book called Seven Basic Plots by Christopher Booker, and it uh-huh. goes into. What makes up a good villain? Mm -hmm. It was a fascinating portion of this book. Because he talks about it's the thing that you're most afraid of inside yourself. Oh, yeah. But he also talks about how they usually have a wound, like they have a scar on their face, or they have a limp, or they have something. But they never actually explain how it happened, usually. But what it does is it helps the audience understand why they're such a jerk, because they actually experienced some pain, and now they're seeking vengeance. Yeah. Where the hero also usually has a hard backstory but they're seeking redemption. Yeah. It's really Heroes fascinating. Heroes seek
1: redemption. Villains seek vengeance. Isn't yep, that fascinating?
0: This interview is with Robert Sutton. He's yeah. a Stanford professor. He wrote two different books on being a jerk. The new one is called The A-Hole Survival Guide, and you have to actually <laughs> spell it out, right? <laughs> yeah. It's called The A-Hole Survival Guide. Anyway, we talk in this interview a little bit about Lance Armstrong, Donald Trump, a couple of the people who are just kind of known for being the bully yeah, personality. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily believe that about Lance, but back before he got busted and fell on all this stuff, I got to know his wife. He's actually only been married once, and she's wonderful, and we got set up on a date. Of course, this is obviously after they got a divorce. Yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. We hit it off a little bit, and then she moved me into the friend zone real quick. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> she's an unbelievable person. Drove to Austin, spent some time with her, and we kind of had this conversation. Where it was obvious, like, hey, this isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. But she knew that I was a fan of Lance, and I thought I was just doing some good things at Live strong Again, this, all this is before. Yeah, yeah. I leave town... I'm driving out of town, and a little Twitter thing pops up, and it's Lance Armstrong
2: uh-huh. with
0: millions of followers, uh-huh. and he just says, see you later, Don. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, that guy's a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> that guy is an absolute. Like he's literally hovering over going, I yeah. want to toy with this kid. Oh, who just, oh man. And it's hard for nice people to understand. And yeah. It took me years to realize there are just people who are jerks. Yeah. They're not good People. Yeah. It has nothing
1: to do with you. They
0: get encouraged by being mean. Yeah. And this guy's a Stanford professor and he's an expert in this stuff. And I think this is literally one of the best conversations we've ever had on this podcast. From a psychological perspective and from a business perspective and just from a self help. Like here's how to have a more peaceful life, get these people out of your life, kind of thing. So I'm encouraged. I think you're gonna get a lot out of this, especially if you can name that jerk. Like right now, (laughs) (laughs) you drive another road, you listen to this podcast, just picture them in your head. Yeah. All right, now let's deal with <laughs> it. Here, your exactly. Here's my interview with Stanford professor Robert Sutton. Robert Sutton, thanks for being on the podcast. It's great to be here, Don. You've got a book coming out September 12th, and it's going to get a lot of attention. It's called The A-Hole Survival Guide, except you don't you say the word a-hole. It's right there on the cover of the book. And I love the image. It's, it's like an Alka-Seltzer going into a glass of water. If you write a book like this, The A-Hole Survival Guide, How to Deal with People Who Treat Like Dirt, you don't write this book unless somebody somewhere got under your skin, and I got to know. Who and how and what happened?
3: I certainly have dealt with plenty of them. So I wrote a book in 2007, I'll censor, The No A-Hole Rule, which was about how to build a civilized workplace, And that was really the thing that got me going. And what happened at the time is there were two forces that were getting me especially interested in that problem. One was, I confess and she shall be unnamed. But uh, I had a colleague who was really quite nasty and would say nasty things to me. And this particular colleague, she was a very skilled a-hole. And I talk about this difference between strategic and clueless a-holes. That's one of the distinctions I made. Well, she was somebody who would always connive to just get you at the point to stab you in the back or to make the little comment to make you feel. She was very skilled at it. She liked getting under your skin. But she was just fabulous at it, honestly. And then there's the other kind of the kind of classic person who loses their temper and have no control over themselves. She wasn't like that. But there's also another second important factor because I had that perspective of feeling, if you will, oppressed. And uh, and gee, by the way, I had done a bunch of research on the expression of emotion in organizational life. I'd studied bill collectors who are sort of professional a-holes in some ways. And then on, on the other side, my wife at that time was managing partner of a large law firm. She had about a thousand lawyers that she uh, was responsible for at one time. And honestly, a-hole management, when you're running a large law firm, uh, lawyers can be very difficult. So I had my perspective of being oppressed close up, and then I had my wife's perspective. Well, you got all these lawyers, and sometimes the ones who bring in the most money are the biggest jerks. When you have a, a professional services firm, you'll have people making in that law firm well over a million dollars and then you'll have staff assistants, and stuff making 30 40 50 and i remember one of the staff coming to her just heartbroken because there was two lawyers sort of leaning over her desk acting like she was invisible talking about how they had each bought these new expensive mercedes and it's like really do you have to do that so it was a combination of those two things that i was getting it and she was managing them (laughs) Well, tell me about the problem.
0: I mean, diagnose our problem here. What are these people costing us both professionally and personally?
3: Well, one of the things that's really been striking in the last 10 years that I've tracked, there's estimates that it costs the economy $20, $30 billion a year in terms of the effects of abuse on employees. But if you start looking at the individual effects, and this is where the evidence is best, we've got experimental evidence, large-scale studies um, in workplaces that if you've got somebody who makes you feel demeaned and de-energized, somebody who's rude to you, somebody who treats you like dirt, somebody who treats you like you're invisible, which is actually just like that legal secretary is talking about how terrible she felt. First of all, there's a whole bunch of mental health problems. People will feel more depressed. They'll feel more anxious. Sleep problems are one of the most common and debilitating effects. There's evidence, especially from Europe, where they'll track large populations of workers. In Scandinavia, they have especially good studies. And people who have bosses who are jerks will have high blood pressure, and there's evidence of higher rates of heart attacks too. So there's that. But then if you look at the research on productivity and creativity, there's all sorts of evidence that if your boss makes you feel bad about yourself and demeans you, you're gonna be less productive. You're gonna be less likely to go the extra mile Just to do something extra for the organization. There's some evidence from fast food chains that when they have jerks as bosses, that employees steal more, (laughs) and they waste more food.
0: Well, let me ask you this. I watched a documentary last night. You know, I just found this Amazon documentary on Lance Armstrong. I mean, it really peeled back the layers of, at the time, I don't know him now. What an absolute bad human being this actually is. And you know, and there will be people who. I want to get to this in a second. There'll be people listening and go, hey, you know, come on. He won tour and, you know, he doped or whatever. You didn't see this documentary. I mean, this guy was paying other players to throw races so that he could win and get more sponsorship. He was actually giving away the prize money to the favorite in the race to stand down and let him win. He called Greg LeMond and confessed that he had been blood doping, and he accused Greg of doing that, and Greg said, you don't understand, I never did that. I never even heard about that stuff, and I had to quit cycling because you guys had gotten so fast. And he turned around and accused Greg Lamont of being an alcoholic and a heroin addict, ruined his life, called one masseuse who basically confessed, said, yeah, I did handle drugs for him, called her a prostitute and a drug addict. This was a terrible person. So, but here's my question. Why do people
3: like them anyway? Some of it is cultural, and and we all know this, that in Western culture, that we sometimes glorify people who are winners and jerks. And And there is, there's a couple things going on here. There's, first of all, there's the chicken and egg problem. There's a researcher at UC Berkeley who's done an enormous number of studies about this, Dr. Keltner, great psychologist. In fact, if you saw the Pixar film Inside Out, he was the main consultant to it. And his argument is that to become successful in organizations and actually flattering people and being nice to them is usually the path to success. But once people get in power, a bunch of things happen to them where they start turning into insensitive jerks. So there is sort of a, in Lance would be a classic case, there is sort of a chicken and egg problem there. But there's also another side, which you did see with Lance as well, which is that if you treat people like dirt, you're fine as long as you're winning and you're making money. But when things start falling apart, what happens is your enemies lie in wait and the speed at which people who have a history of, of all those enemies sort of lying underneath the woodwork, who push them down. And, and that's what I always say to people is, if you're good and you're a jerk, you better keep winning because you're going to be in trouble. Or the opposite advice, if you're incompetent, you better be nice. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm sure you've studied the Enneagram. We had a guest on about the Enneagram, and there's a personality type called the Enneagram 8. So, Enneagram 8 is uh, Dick Cheney, Donald Trump, Lance Armstrong. You know, it's the I've never done anything wrong. I've never made a mistake. It's completely impossible for me to say that I've made a mistake. And they believe what they say. And, And so, if they need something to be true that isn't true, they just say it and they literally believe that that makes it true. And affirming what you're saying, it shows how they destroy themselves. And they burn so many bridges that all the people they've bullied finally gang up on them. And take them down. And I'm actually tempted to write an article about how Donald Trump is going to go down. I don't know specifically if he will resign or be impeached, but basically he's going to say, you can't burn this many bridges without finally people getting together behind the scenes and saying, all right, let's take this guy down.
3: I'm generally trying to stay away from politics just because it's so volatile. But uh, one thing that I would say is that even if people like that continue to be successful, What happens is, and this is to sort of turn to the focus of the book a little bit, whether or not being a jerk helps you get ahead and you and I both seem to be of the camp as our most, but not all academics that being a jerk in the end, you pay for it. The fact is that if you're working for somebody like that or you have a colleague with somebody like that and you've got a problem. And that's sort of my point. And there's sort of two camps, honestly. There's the jerks finish first camps. And then there's the one like me who, well, sometimes being a jerk works in the short term but eventually you will pay. And just a real quick word, cause this is in the opening part of the book and then we should get to the survival tactics. One of the people who I actually, I always was sure and I had a lot of evidence formal and informal was a pure jerk was Steve Jobs. And certainly he was never a doormat but there's a guy named Ed Catmull who still runs Pixar and then worked with Steve Jobs for 25 years ed makes this argument and i had him fact check it that the steve jobs who got rich and famous and made pixar and especially made the modern apple was somebody who after he got pushed out by apple and failed at next sort of went through a period wandered in the wilderness and although he still was pretty edgy His most extreme nastiness got tamped down. And he actually got Wow, I would not heard that. Yeah. I heard some hints of this, but, you know, Ed might be making the argument too strongly. My interpretation of it is the modern Steve Jobs we're talking about was a better team player and less of a jerk. The thing I always say about Steve Jobs is he was such a complicated person. He's like a Rorschach test. It's hard to know. On the other side, I don't know this third hand. I know this first hand. A pretty good friend of mine named uh, David Kelly, who uh, runs a famous firm named IDEO, was the founder. David had cancer around the time he was in the hospital around the time that the iPhone came out. So Steve was pretty busy. In the middle of that, Jobs would go to the hospital every day to support David. Wow. Yeah. He did have a nice side. But he did have a nasty side, too. So anyway.
0: All right. Let's get to strategies for dealing with these folks. First off, avoiding them. We obviously can't avoid all of them, but I
3: would imagine you avoid the ones that you can. There's a set of strategies, and we've all been in the situation where as you navigate through, and let's focus on workplace, to me, it's like a toxic substance finding ways to avoid contact with them because there's all this evidence that nasty behavior is incredibly contagious in fact one of the most reliable ways to get sick by jerks and turn into a jerk is to have a lot of contact with them and so i have a whole different set of sort of um, a-hole avoidance strategies one is and so many of us work in open offices now if you can do anything to get just a little further away from them A few feet, a few extra desks where you're sitting, it has a huge effect. In fact, there's a couple of researchers, they tracked 2000 workers in open offices for um, a couple of years. And what they found was that if you were within 25 feet of a toxic person, you were likely to catch the disease and likely to be fired. There's also an upside to that. If you're near somebody who's a superstar, you're more likely to perform better yourself. So what you want to do is find a star who isn't a jerk and sit closer to him. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the other sort of classic strategies, and, and I've done this myself, is to find ways, for example, if you know you're going to be in a meeting with somebody who's nasty, try to have as few meetings as possible with them try to have them as short as possible. And one of the things I'm a big believer in, and maybe it's because I've been in academia so long where we definitely have our share, is that it depends how your personality is, leaving early when you can't stand it anymore or getting there late is sometimes a good idea to protect your soul. So literally avoiding exposure to it. And one of my favorite set of techniques that I talk about in the book. I know all these organizations that have these systems, and you may know this too, is that they have, I call them early AHO warning systems. So what happens is, in the classic thing is, the boss's executive assistant who will warn everybody, and, and I know multiple firms where this happens, that the boss is on the way, and also warn people that he or she is in an especially bad mood, and you should be really careful and maybe avoid contact with them. So the set of strategies there, and I certainly have used them in in my life, are trying to find ways to avoid contact with them, brevity, intensity, things like that.
0: I believe you. And as soon as I figure out somebody's kind of manipulative or deceptive or they're a bully or they – I've gotten them out of my life. I've done that for about 10 years But here's the thing. I have no skill in actually going head-to-head with them. I really don't. And the other thing is you realize they like it when you get down in the mud and
3: wrestle with them. It depends on the nature of the jerk, but yes, definitely some like it. Absolutely. They're trying to get under your skin. Yes, so I don't want to go too far into theory, but... There's an interesting difference between people who are Machiavellian and people who are narcissists, okay? So Machiavellian people are really, really manipulative, but their perspective, and this is an important difference, is, and these are the people whose literally, their brains light up when you start like arguing with them and you're being hostile. And one of the main reasons is that if you're nice to them, they think that you're a pushover. So those are the kind of people who like to wrestle around in the mud, By the way, I don't think Jobs was a narcissist. I think Jobs was Machiavellian, and in a constructive way, he liked when people argued with him. If you were a doormat, he didn't respect you. The other side, I'm going to try to stay as far away from politics as possible, but people who are narcissists, what they want, they have very thin skins and they want constant flattery. And they don't like to wrestle. They like to have people kiss up constantly. And I think that we've all had, and I'll go back to you know the original person who really motivated me to write this book. And it's also important because it was a woman, not a man. This is a person who is just a classic narcissist that what she wants is for you to flatter her constantly. And she just wants to talk about how wonderful she is. And so arguing with her isn't that useful because she just has such a thin skin, especially criticizing her. so I guess I'm doing some sort of whole analysis here but that's one part of it but you said something I want to get back to which is really important there's a chapter in the book about it I don't know about you but from what I can tell you got clients I got clients we all got clients this is part of it too that if you are in in bad relationships work relationships relationships with clients to protect yourself there are times when you just have to cut it off and I don't believe that you should just walk out the door and and quit because you got to protect your family your career and do it in a way with whether some class but if you get in a situation where you're stuck with somebody who is a jerk, finding a way to get out of the relationship in the situation is really important.
0: As soon as we realize a potential client is going to be a jerk, they're out. I had some of my team say, Hey, you know, we've we certified this particular marketing coach and they're hard to deal with. And I finally I got wind of it and I heard it from two different people. So I'm like, okay, really? It's probably just a type A personality. I called them with Within five minutes, I was screaming at the guy. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's contagious.
3: That's classic. It's so contagious. What's amazing?
0: Of course, we literally wrote him a check for 10 grand and said, never call us again. And I realized the hard thing was I walked away going, he caused me to lose it within 10 minutes, which is what he wanted. And so somebody who's always trying to play sort of mental chess with you, that's unnerving. I can't do that. Robert, I want to learn from you. I know how to avoid them. I
3: need everything else you got here. How do I outwit them? There's different kinds of outwitting. One is just getting the heck out. I mean, there's another set of strategies we should talk about, which is just sort of toughening it up so it doesn't hurt so much. We should get to that. What the smart person does, and your story you just told is actually pretty interesting, is does a little analysis when they've got a jerk on their hands. One is and in your situation, bless you, you have the power. What you do is you figure out who has more power, them or me. And if they have more power than you, you have fewer options. If you have more power than them, good for you. So that's one. A second thing that is also related to this, and frankly, the less, far you are up the chain, the more you've got to do this, but it even helps if you're at the very top of the organization or the team, is that the more people you have on your side who back up the perspective that this person is a jerk and will help you fight the jerk, the better off you are. The third thing And this is partly legalistic, and I don't get very legalistic in this book, even though I am married to a lawyer, is that having some documentation, having some evidence that the person is a jerk, all those things make sense. And in fact, the thing I like about your story is you sort of had all three. So you you had power you had other people to have this perspective and you had evidence right in front of your face. So those are the three things that I talk about. And then what you gotta do is, and this is where I talk about survival strategies, you kinda gotta figure out what's gonna work best to outwit them. And it depends on the situation. I don't mean to be that much of a psychologist, but it does depend. If you can just do what you did and pay them to go away, that's fine. But there's other situations where you've got to play more chess. And one of my favorite examples, it's a masterclass on how to bring down a narcissist. I gave a talk, this is probably four years ago, to a large group that had a lot of people who were community college executives, essentially. They had a chancellor who was just textbook narcissist, which was if he didn't get his daily dose of flattery, he would just lose it and start screaming at people. He was always bad-mouthing people. So what happened was his team figured out that the only way to keep him under some control while they brought together the case to bring him down, was to kiss his, excuse me, butt, we won't say that other word, (laughs) just constantly, every day. But these guys were so sneaky, and this is bringing him down. And they just did that just to keep him under control, and they just documented for months his bad behavior. Then the group of them went, there's like a board of regents or something like that for a community college, and gave him the evidence. The guy got fired. And if you think about it, it's actually... He probably never saw it coming.
0: Never saw it coming.
3: But from that, you know, you could look at it from his perspective. Those people who brought him down were total a-holes. But on the other hand, how else could they do it? Cause the, and he was the classic kind of guy. And this is, you know, I would say if you're going to be a smart jerk, you should be good at kissing up and kicking down. He'd kiss up to the board so effectively that they just thought he was wonderful. And they were shielded from that. So
0: anyway. So is that part of disarming them? Because you've got avoiding them, outwitting them, disarming them. Is that part of disarming them is kissing up a little bit? So
3: another kind of jerk, which is a different sort of jerk that um, I tend to think about, I've been writing stuff about this, are petty tyrants. So I hate to bring up Stanford example, but the classic petty tyrant we would have at Stanford is somebody who's sort of a mid-level manager who is sort of the bean counter type, who doesn't just enforce the rules, but this person actually likes to make you suffer. I mean, they really do. And they're petty about it. And sometimes they're called rule Nazis and they're martyrs. You'll be a dentist. Remember Little Shop of Horrors, whatever, you'll be a dentist. (laughs) Little Shop of, that's right. That's actually perfect. Although I had the world's greatest dentist. But anyways, so to go back to petty tyrants. So what the evidence is, and there's great experimental evidence that if you put people in a situation where they have some power, but they're treated with disrespect and low stature they tend to take it out on people around them so there is an argument that if somebody treats you like that well you might want to fire them you might want to give them feedback and use power strategies but but often what they need is some love and respect and so I don't know that's outwitting them, but it's kind of like making a friend and elevating people who are treated with disrespect, but who do important work. It isn't just a matter of bringing them down, it's a matter of, of lifting them up. So to me, that's different than sort of the flaming narcissist or who wants to get ahead. If somebody is constantly treating you people like dirt because they feel disrespected, there's an argument for elevating people who deserve some elevation and some appreciation. So it's it's not, to me, all about, oh, that person's such a jerk and we're going to bring him down. You kind of, and that's why when I was working on this book, it was kind of funny. Initially, I, I, I tried for a while to come up with more one-size-fits-all strategies. But to me, what the book is, is is a collection of strategies. And it depends on the kind of jerk you're dealing with. And one thing I, I really like that you brought up, Don, is There are different of us that are more comfortable with one kind of style than another. And another thing we haven't talked about is that sometimes we all get in situations where we are being treated badly and we know that we have to get through it and endure it because there's something on the other side that's worth it. So one of my favorite examples, and and she leads off one of the chapters. So one of my friends, her name's Becky Margiotta. Becky was a West Point cadet. She actually made it through West Point. She went into dark ops. She's done all sorts of great stuff in the nonprofit world, but she was one of the early female cadets at West Point. And so there was all this hazing where they get an inch from you and insult you and scream at you. That this is what happens the first few months. And Becky said, I was having a little trouble with it until I got in my mind that what I was going to do was focus on how funny they were and how skilled their insults were and just view it as sort of funny and also just appreciate the craft, right? And she knew it was temporary. She knew she just had to get through it. And she said, every now and then I would get in trouble because I'd start laughing because I thought they were really funny. And then they'd start screaming at me even more and I'd start laughing more and I'd get in this vicious circle of laughing with them screaming at me. So she said that was the only problem with that strategy. So that was pretty funny. <laughs>
0: I'll be back with the rest of this interview in just a moment. We're back with another segment of Marketing Mythbusters with Kula Callahan in the Wonder Woman pose. <laughs> Welcome back, Kula. Thank you. What is today's marketing myth?
2: Today's myth is this: your business is too complicated to explain clearly.
0: But it is. I it's have not so many different revenue streams. It's not- we it. have a cat boarding, <laughs> you know, we board cats, Again we, with we help cats. you clarify Again your, with your message, cats. we do minor dental surgeries <laughs> at StoryBrand.
2: How am I going to explain Here's all that? Here's the thing. We work with businesses all the time who come to us and say, we do too many things. There is no possible way that we can clarify our message we and do. to really-
0: We hear that a lot.
2: into really succinct sound bites that make sense to our customers. There's just too much we offer.
0: And we try not to roll our eyes. We hear that that all the time.
2: (laughs) Here's the thing. All of the products that you offer or services that you offer or solutions that your company might offer likely fit under one umbrella problem that you help your customers solve.
0: That's right. And you have to be known for solving a problem. That's right. And so if you're not known for solving a problem yet, that's the first step. And here's the thing. If you went to a movie about Jason Bourne and Jason Bourne wanted to know who he really was, and marry the girl, and run the marathon, and save the cat, you'd check out.
2: Absolutely. And
0: so the problem is, if you have a bunch of diverse revenue streams, and you try to communicate all those to the customer, they are going to tune out. And so you're not going to communicate anything. So yes, you're going to have to leave a lot of stuff out in your initial sort of marketing. But- you're going to fight to be known for something. So let me give you an example. I went and met with a business called Equify LLC in Fort Worth, Texas. A wonderful organization. Came to us with the same problem. Mm-hmm. They are known for heavy equipment auctions. Like if you wanted to go buy a giant bulldozer, you right. go a crane or something. They don't hardly make any money off those auctions. They basically break even and pass the savings on to the customer. They do make some money lending you the money to buy the equipment, so they're a bank, but nobody thinks of them as a bank.
2: So complicated. It
0: is a little bit complicated, but in order to loan you the money to buy the equipment, they have to make sure you don't have indemnity clauses in your right. insurance, all kinds of stuff. So now they have a risk assessment division. They assess the value of your existing equipment or your real estate, or those. So they have to have that division. And, you know, they have five different divisions. Pretty intricate
2: very... divisions of a company.
0: Yes, and Pretty what was amazing to me about those guys is. When we actually analyzed where the revenue was coming from, they had twenty thousand customers who had given them money, and only two hundred of those customers had yeah. ever bought crossover services.
2: That's crazy.
0: So where's the money? The money is not new customers. The money is actually in telling the existing right. customers all the other services that you have.
2: Absolutely.
0: But it is a challenge. You know, they had a thousand words on their website. I wish I could show you before and after. We actually have a snapshot of the before. Before, their website looked like a blog. I mean, it was just paragraph <laughs> after paragraph and all sorts of so many vague ways. language, like totally. asset management. You're just like, I don't know what these people do. You could literally look at their website for 10 minutes, you know what do. So we had to come up with an umbrella thing that all of this fit under. And we were vague, and yet it feels kind of pointed. We exist to make your company stronger. Well, their auctions exist to make your company stronger. Their lending exists to make your company stronger. Their risk assessment exists to make your company stronger. So now you go to their website, and it says, we exist to make your company stronger five different ways, and you list the five. Now I know the problem you solve is you make my weak company strong, and you do it five different ways. So you're able to get through to the human brain much quicker. Absolutely. And so I would say the first challenge for any business who has a complicated, diverse revenue stream is to figure out one problem that all those revenue streams solve.
2: Absolutely.
0: And become known for it. Totally. If you can't do that, and you probably can, but you think you can't. And we find this all the time where people come to story Workshop workshops, like, I can't, it just doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, in 30 seconds, we're like, does that work? And they're like, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> amazing, you know? say it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can I write that down? But anyway, so we, those problems can be solved. If you can't, that's the point where you want to, perhaps break up companies into different brands right. and market them completely separately mm-hmm. because you're not going to be known for a couple things. Like if you had a plumber come over to your house and they're fixing your toilet and they just do an amazing job. They're I efficient. They're on time. <laughs> you love your plumber. And <laughs> as they're leaving, they say, hey, also, I'm a private chef. And they give you a card. Your brain doesn't (laughs) categorize them in two different categories. they don't
2: solve the same problem.
0: They could be the greatest chef in town, (laughs) but you're never going to think of them as a chef. It's the same problem with a lot of our business. We go, well, we do this, and we do this other thing that's completely opposite. Well, you've got to find an umbrella thing. So if this (laughs) plumber, I don't know if this would actually work, but we exist to make your home life better, you know, or whatever. And then, you know, we do... Home parties, events, we do fix-it jobs. You know, that might fit. But even then, I'd probably break those up into separate (laughs) brands. Anyway, the point is, you you do have to fit under one umbrella. You have to be known for solving one problem. And your company is not too diverse, probably, to get it done. It's a great marketing myth. Kula, thanks again for joining us.
2: Absolutely. Great to be here.
0: All right, if you actually want to come and experience StoryBrand in person and talk to us about your brand, you can come to a live workshop. Just go to storybrand.com and register today. That's storybrand.com. Register, figure out your clear message in a room with four or five other facilitators who can interact with you personally. Make sure you register today, storybrand.com. If we can't outwit them, can't disarm them, they can't avoid them, send them packing. I like this one.
3: How do you do that? What do you do? I think we've already talked about some of the approaches. One is if you can fire them. The other one, and, and, I, and, and I've sort of implied this, but to be really explicit, it kind of depends who they are. If, if it's somebody who, and one of the big distinctions I make are between strategic and clueless jerks if they're a clueless jerk who doesn't realize and there's a lot of evidence that most of us are pretty clueless about how we come across if there's evidence that they don't want to be a jerk but you got to give them feedback then sometimes you can reform them and give them feedback but if it's somebody who's either strategic or isn't going to change then to me the key elements that we've sort of talked about are you form allies form a posse collect evidence, those people from the community college are a perfect example. And then hopefully you will eventually have a case to bring them down. Now it depends how much you're trapped and how patient you are. That, since you and I both saw that Lance Armstrong movie recently, and I I did see the same one you're talking about, there was a reporter david welch i think is his name from the times well eventually he won and the story came out but as part of that lance armstrong sued and got millions from the times for claiming that it was a false claim and then uh, obviously there was a a settlement that reversed it but boy sometimes you got to wait a really long time so you kind of got to do analysis of whether or not you're fighting and one thing we should warn your listeners about is that in most states it's legal to record people without their permission the But there's seven or eight where you're committing a crime including california by the way so in new york it's legal not in california but to me it's having the case to lie in wait or waiting for the moment when they're weak and that that's one of the key things that you start seeing is when people start losing power then you have more power to push back but you got to be careful i mean those people just since we saw the movie betsy andrea who was the most vocal persistent person boy she suffered for years i mean she she quote unquote won in the end but it What costs. So there's an argument for it, depends how much of a martyr you are and how mad you are and what your options are. But if you're going to fight, sometimes you got to get out. I'll give you an example. Sometimes people think this is easy. About two years after the No A hole book came out, I actually got an email and then I got got on the phone with her. So she was head of HR, I got to be careful, of a Fortune 100 company. Okay, I'll say that. She's head of HR and she tells me we're installing a no jerk rule. And I have talked the CEO into firing the three worst jerks on the top management team. And I said to her, I said, you're new, you sure you can post? Yes, he's on my side. Well, three weeks later, They fire her. (laughs) What happened was she thought that she had the case. She thought she had the CEO on her side, but the three jerks went to the CEO and basically convinced him they were more important to the core business than the head of HR. And she was out of a job. So if you're going to fight, those are the two things, build a case. Do a sort of cold power analysis and maybe have an exit option. <laughs> That's incredible.
0: And this is the, the, the last strategy here, probably more in the book, developing protective
3: psychological armor. What this is, for some of your listeners, will probably heard of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's the most common kind of, and effective psychotherapy. And essentially, it's reframing the situation so it doesn't hurt so much. So we talked about Becky Margiata and how she would view the upper class cadets who taunted her as just sort of like a joke. Viewing things as funny is actually really a good defense mechanism. It does hurt less. Another protective strategy, which is there's really good experimental evidence. When you're in a situation that's painful, if you can switch time focus and you can say, when I look back on this tonight, a month from now, a year from now, it's not gonna hurt nearly as much. This idea of of time shifting or looking back, temporal distancing is I think what the researchers call it. It turns out that's a very effective strategy and if you can put yourself in that frame, that helps. Anything you can do to become more emotionally detached from the person, it can be effective. And this might be my favorite example in the book. I'm talking to this colleague of mine and I gotta be a little careful. He's an administrator at Stanford. And he had just come from a meeting with uh, two or three of, shall I say, the least pleasant colleagues we have. And he was in a great mood. And usually when I come from meetings with them, I'm just like in pain. Honestly, I feel like I'm going to cry or something. So I said, how'd you do it? And by the way, note that I've written two books on workplace jerks, and I'm allegedly a jerk expert. And he said, oh, he said, what I do is I pretend I'm a doctor who specializes in studying exotic forms of, let's say, jerkism, okay? Okay. And the worse they get, the happier I am because I say to myself, oh my goodness, what an exotic type. I've never seen this before. I'm so lucky to see this. (laughs) And it's a strategy I've never used hardly myself. I just get pissed off. He was smart enough to come up with this sort of emotional detachment strategy.
0: Emotional detachment is a great way to put it. You watch the Republican primaries, and you watched Trump get under everybody's skin one by one, one by one by one. And it worked. I mean, you you watch Jeb Bush's face— during the primary debates, and Trump just had them. I mean, just had them. And you go, hey man, why
3: can't you detach from this? I don't know if I could do it. I saw that too. What to me, you're talking about a situation. So the way I define jerks are people who leave others feeling demeaned, de-energized, disrespected. If you are in a zero-sum game where it's I win, you lose game, and there's no incentive for cooperation at all then actually acting like a jerk is an effective strategy. The problem is, and you know, I don't want to bring up the, but you know, I think McCain might have remembered some of the things that Trump said if you look at his recent behavior.
0: 98 senators might have remembered it, and two, whoever they
3: are, didn't in the recent vote. But the fact is that uh, once you get to a cooperative game, you end up having a a serious sort of problem. But yes, if you're in a pure I win, you lose game and it's not multiple, then treating people like dirt can be an extremely effective strategy because you're literally stomping on people on the way to the top. And we see this. Microsoft's a really great example, actually and Microsoft's really under the new CEO Satya, he is so impressive. One of the things that worked for them for years, and you know, Bill Gates is a much more mature guy, and I think even he would admit that they set up a culture where it was a backstabbing, I win, you lose sort of culture. This is extremely well documented. But one thing that Satya and others figured out was that to do the kind of work that they do, that having people cooperate, the backstabbing and treating people like dirt didn't work anymore. So the more cooperation you need, the more a problem it is to treat people like dirt. How do we know if we are a jerk and what do we do about it? I have sort of two parts to this story, actually. Well, first of all, let's make a distinction. One is a certified jerk. This means we're all jerk all the time or most of the time. And then there's a temporary jerk. And all of us, and I certainly plead guilty, there's examples in the book, are capable of treating people with disrespect intentionally or unintentionally sometimes. So there's that distinction. And if you wanna look at some of the warning signs that you might become a jerk, Having more power than other people, especially if you were powerless before. Being under time pressure There's so much evidence that when people including people who are seminary students, by the way, that when they're in a rush, they don't stop to help people who look like they're dying. There's evidence that shows this. It's incredible. (laughs) I'm not kidding. There's some famous studies done at Yale. So being rich, the richer you are, the Is that right? There's a correlation? Remember the guy Dr. Keltner I mentioned? So Dr. this is the book. Dr. Keltner does this great study with his students in the intersection Berkeley in Berkeley, California, my undergraduate place too. And, And it's a four-way stop with cars and with pedestrians. So what he does is he has his students code cars from one to five and the top is the Mercedes and the bottom is an old beat up Chevette. That's sort of the category. And people who were in Mercedes were far less likely to let other cars go, to let pedestrians go, than people who were in Chevette's and stuff like that. And he's done bazillions of studies like this, that being rich is, anytime you feel that you're more powerful and you're you're richer than others. So those are some of the sort of symptoms and being sleep deprived is another thing. Here's the challenge about being a jerk, and this is where the evidence actually is really clear. The amount of self-awareness that we have as human beings of us doing anything bad, we're very bad about understanding our weaknesses. And the worst way to figure out if somebody is a jerk is to ask them if they are a jerk. So the, the key thing for people who recognize it and deal with it is they have people in their lives who can tell them when they're a jerk. And there's a whole bunch of research about self-awareness that we human beings are pretty bad and looking inside our soul doesn't work. What we do is we surround ourselves to so have somebody who can tell us, and I, I've got a wife who's very good at this, who says, you know, Bob, you've been a jerk. And I'll give you sort of two famous examples. One is, and there is some evidence that Jobs did get better his last 10 or 15 years. He had a guy who passed away recently, unfortunately. This guy's name is Bill Campbell. They called him the coach. He was actually the coach of the Columbia football team before he went to Silicon Valley and got rich. And, And Bill Campbell, he was CEO of Intuit he started companies but one of the things that he did he was known as the CEO whisperer and he would just coach all of these people and he would go for a walk with jobs every Sunday and sort of tell them the truth and another example and this is my favorite story in the book And this does provide some Trumpian hints for you, by the way. So you might like this. Uh, So it's the darkest days of World War II. And for those of us who know World War II history, it's 1940. Winston Churchill's just got a mess in his hands. I mean, Dunkirk has just happened. The U.S. hasn't come into the war. They're being just bombed to pieces every night by the Germans. And his wife, Clementine, writes him a letter and says, Winston essentially you are treating your staff like dirt. I think her line was, you're not as kind as you used to be. And she tells him to stop it. And she was getting gossip from the people who work for him. And she has this little theory that essentially when you treat people like that, what ends up happening is either they act blindly loyal, whether or not they feel it, or they're afraid to say anything. And I really like that story because what he had, and there's a whole letters between Clementine and Winston, what he had was somebody in his life who would bring him down and tell him the truth when nobody else would do it. So, And I think that's true for any of us at any stage in our life. Having somebody we trust to give us negative information and tell us the truth, it's not just the best defense against being a jerk. It's also a defense against incompetence, too. This is wonderful advice, and there is nothing, in my
0: opinion, that is worth living with working with interacting with a jerk i think about 10 years ago i made a decision i wouldn't do it and thank god i'm in a luxurious position where i don't have to but part of me thinks i'm in that position because i decided not to do it in the first place but anyway if you're in a relationship with somebody who has beaten you down emotionally psychologically the a-hole survival guide by robert sutton i think this is one of the best conversations we've ever had on this podcast and we've had a lot of great conversations i am so grateful that you took time
3: oh great thank you it's great to talk
0: to you thanks so much robert Do you think that was one of the best? So good. Yeah. So, good. He's, so he's so engaging. Yeah, he's, he's really winsome I'd too. love
1: to have him as a professor. Yeah,
0: no <laughs> kidding. He's actually a professor on scaling up a business. Really? That's what he's actually, his expertise <laughs> is actually that. But he's like, Don, my a-hole books sell really well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> How would you like that as your Twitter bio? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I actually have dedicated my life to this, but my yep. a-hole books sell. My uh, a-hole books sell <laughs> very well. That's really awesome. It's just some practical tips. And hey, I, I just affirm again, man, if you got somebody like that in your life, get away. Yep. At least 25 feet. Yep. Are you going to move your office now? <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I'm downstairs. <laughs> hey, I have a riding shed in the backyard. Yeah. There's a reason for that. I'm going to stay at least 50 feet away from you people. You're gonna, I'm going to get fired. Yeah. I mean, statistically, <laughs> I might have a heart attack. If I'm anywhere near you. All right. Another great conversation. Thanks, JJ. Oh, Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell, who just released a brand new album called Dive Deep. As we close, we're going to play you a song from his record. This song is called When the End Comes. We love Andrew. You can listen to him on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy and creating a clear message is the best way to get rid of an a-hole.
2: I see it locked down inside of your head you have got dangled up in your own way you're